So a couple of weeks ago is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Genesis 2 is talking about the purpose of man. It talks about God um, setting up, establishing and ordaining marriage and family. And it's just this amazing chapter. It's the last chapter of real innocence. The next chapter, obviously, James taught last week, sin enters into the picture. This week might possibly be one of the worst chapters in the Bible or one of my least favorite chapters in the Bible, or so I thought um, before I had a chance to dig in a little deeper tonight. Uh, it's Cain and Abel. And um, I hope as we go through it, you'll see like I saw as I was studying that God is so patient and so merciful and so gracious and so loving, and we are not. Verse one, chapter four. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse two, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. We have our very first pregnancy, our very first birth, a lot of firsts in these first few chapters of Genesis. Pure and perfect genes, um, DNA, everything about Adam and Eve right now is absolutely perfect, totally perfect. And then this gets passed on to the boys. Of course, sin is in the, in the world at this point, but genetically speaking, we have two perfect human beings who created offspring, Cain and Abel. Don't know what Eve was thinking at this time. I mean, you can imagine all of a sudden like her stomach is growing and it's getting bigger and I mean, you don't know what birth is and you've never seen this before and you've never had this happen before. And then all of a sudden, this is what happens. Maybe she somehow knew this was coming. I don't know how that could have been, but God could have revealed it to her somehow. But this is a first. She could have wondered. Genesis 3 said there is a Messiah that will come that will fix and change all of this. And so maybe she wondered, is this it? She doesn't know the timeline of God's plan for humanity at this point. Maybe what we're about to go through is what will fix what I seem to have broken. We obviously know that that is not the case. In fact, quite the opposite. We have Cain and Abel. Cain, the farmer, Abel, the rancher. It continues in verse three. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. A couple of things that we should preface this with. I think sometimes um, as we read through these chapters, you can kind of almost feel like it's, um, we, I think in our minds, we can kind of make up like what the timeline is. Maybe this is the next day, or this is the next week, or this is the next year, or this is the next season in the Bible. But there is a lot of ambiguity when it comes to the time. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. There are some theologians that say that the youngest that they could have been would, would have been probably 50. And so there's a lot of gaps in here and some information. We don't know exactly how old they were but they do know enough and they have done enough to understand what it is they are doing right here. Somehow God has spoken to them and taught them that this is what they are to do, to bring an offering. So they are in the presence of the Lord. They are worshiping together. They are bringing an offering from their employment to the Lord. 
There's some questions about God's response. It says for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so people will compare it. Abel uh, brings the firstborn. It is a blood offering. It's different than um, what Cain would have brought. But as you do some research, not as many people agree with some of these theories behind those. It seems more likely that most people would agree that what they brought with their hands was both good, but what, what they brought with their hearts was something totally different. And as we go through this and we see the dialogue between God and Cain, we will begin to see what God already saw here in the beginning. There's a couple of moments here. Cain's response back to God reveals to us, the reader, what God had already seen and what he had already known. Um, I liken this exchange in these verses here, three through five. Um, suppose a husband gives his card to his wife to buy herself something, and then he complains about it to her, but then he brags to other people about what he bought for her. It would probably cause her to say, I don't even want that. I think in, in a very simple elementary form, that's a little bit of what we have going on here in the story. And a lot of people will come to church in the same way, begrudgingly, coming through the doors unwillingly, or in this case, maybe just to present themselves in a way that's different than what they actually live. And that's not the heart of God. God wants us to be open and honest before him. God wants us to come through these doors with a heart that is ready to receive his instruction, what he has for us with humility and all humbleness and gentleness. And so we as brothers and sisters, we can't see each other's hearts, which is probably a good thing, but God can. And God sees Cain's heart. So it's super important for us to examine our hearts when we come before the Lord, when we come in here and we have a time of prayer or praise or worship, examine our hearts to make sure that we're in the right standing before God? Are we honest with him? Is there an area of our heart that we're holding back? Judas was really good at being religious and he betrayed Jesus. There's a doctor, I think it was in the South in 2009. His name is George Tiller. And in his church, he was very highly regarded People spoke of him like, this guy's a saint. His family is amazing. This is one of the, the best people that you could meet. Served in his church, was faithful, was there all the time. In his lifetime, as a late-term abortion doctor, he aborted over 60,000 babies. And in 2009, on his way into church, he was gunned down by a person from the streets. That is somebody who was not living a life that would have matched what they said that they believed. <clears throat> you can understand Cain is probably not very thrilled about this, but this is um, his response is where we get to kind of see where his heart is. The second part of verse five says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And look at the gentleness and the kindness of God in verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God is reminding him, listen, this isn't the end for you. This isn't over. If you do well, so he didn't do well, 
That would be the implication. What he did was not well. But God says, I'm a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chance. I'm patient with you. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The warning from God is, it's actually an encouraging one, really. Sin is there, it's crouching, but you, Cain, have power over it. It kind of goes back to, to week one. Matt was talking about how God has given us the ability to kibosh and rule over the world. In this situation, this is a spiritual battle, but God still says, Cain, listen, you have the ability to overcome this moment. What is your response in this moment? God warns that sin is crouching. In 1 Peter 5.8, we also get the warning, New Testament warning, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it is also for Cain. He says, you must rule over it. And he says to the believer, I've given you what you need to overcome that. We are not helpless in this fight. Romans 8 says that we're more than conquerors. 2 Peter 1.3 says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Cain knows God on an intimate level. Surely he knew that he had this divine power accessible to him. For us, the only way, the only way for us to overcome sin The only way is through Jesus. There is no other way. In your flesh, eventually, you will lose that battle. So how do you do that? I read a great quote that is a reminder that Satan is a liar. We are to remind ourselves that sin promises what it cannot give, and it gives what it does not promise. Galatians 5.16 says, when you walk by the spirit, you overcome the flesh. Trust God, not yourself. We have moments of weakness. We have moments where we think we know what we should do apart from God, and it can be foolish. So we had a conversation with our daughter this past weekend. Um, She was with a great group of friends. They wanted to go do something. I think all of the kids were from church, from Edgewater. So she came to me and they were hanging out and they wanted to do something and it wasn't bad. And I'm kind of a yes dad and my wife is a yes mom. We say yes as much as possible. This was a very, very rare instance where we had to say no. And then the response was, what, what is the typical response from a teenager after you say, you can't go do that with all of your friends? Why? And then the second thing is everyone else's mom and dad said they could. And some of you dads out there betrayed me this moment. I'm telling you right now, there's a couple of you that I still need to talk to that I haven't yet. And I will, trust me, I will. I wasn't happy. I was the one dad who was holding out and I didn't want that. It wasn't like this fleshly thing like, well, I'm holding out. I'm the only one who said no. I was really frustrated. I was like, ugh, I have no backup right now. But... It literally was me against every other parent in my daughter's eyes. She acquiesced. 
she told her friends what I told her. And they said, your dad's right. We should listen to him. I was like, oh, all right. Thank you for that. And the next day we had a conversation with our daughter. And she said, the thing that frustrated me is that I felt like you didn't trust me and I haven't given you a reason to not trust me. And I said, I understand, sweetheart. I totally understand that. But to be completely honest, I don't fully trust you. I don't fully trust you. And, and it's not just you. I don't fully trust myself. I don't fully trust myself. And that's why God gave me a wife. And that's, that's why God gave me brothers and the Lord. And so God gave me a family so that in those moments, those little gray areas of life where who knows where it could go? Eh, it's not really a yes or a no. Like who knows? I have a wife and I have a family and I have friends who can say, ah, we're going against you on this one. And I said, one of these days, you'll be thankful that you have a dad who actually had to do that or did that or upheld my end of the bargain. And she said, no, I, I, I see what you're saying now. It's a harsh way to say it. I don't like to hear it that way, but I totally get what you're saying. And if I'm completely honest, my flesh is the same way. I found out, I'm gonna be really transparent with you guys, so you're gonna to have to forgive me. And if you judge me tonight, that's between you and God. So I'm gonna let you take it up with him. I got a text yesterday. I have a super busy week this week and next week. Like super busy. Everybody here's got stuff going on. Everybody's busy. It's not just me. Everybody's busy. And I got a text. Can you fill in tomorrow night, Wednesday night? And I was like, uh, I didn't open it because I didn't want it to say red. <laughs> I just sat there. Uh, wait, what chapter is it? Cain and Abel, brother kills brother. Ah. Uh, I left it there for, for a bit and I, I'll be honest. And again, you judge me if you want, you can take it up with the Lord. I, I was bickering with God about it. I was like, God, I have so much stuff I have to get done. I have so much stuff today. I have so much stuff tomorrow. I have so much stuff this week. This is gonna like eat up the next day and a half. And I looked at my schedule and it was stuff that graciously some of you said, yeah, I can meet with you on Thursday. Go ahead and get that done. Or I can meet with you on Friday. Go ahead and get that done. And so uh, I was like, okay, God, okay, here we go. So I texted back. I have no way to say no. I have nothing. I'm like thinking of something. I have no, nothing, no excuses. Yes, sign me up. And then today, as I read through this and studied through it, I was so blessed and reminded how good and gracious our God is. I've been walking with the Lord for 25 years and there were things in here that I saw today. You know how God's word is. You read something you've read over and over and it's like, ah, oh, that is so beautiful. And I am so selfish and yet loved by you. So it was a sweet time and I'm glad that God gave me the opportunity to spend some time with him today. And I know my week will be blessed for it. I don't know if you guys will be blessed, but I was blessed. So <clears throat> Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9 says that our faith is a free gift. To overcome these moments, we have to rely on our faith. I think Cain's faith was very weak in this moment. Actually, in Hebrew, in the, or, sorry, in Hebrews chapter 11, I think it is, it says that Abel's offering was made in faith. And so that it would imply then what was wrong with Cain's offering was that it was not done in the same manner. And so 
as we think about practicing our faith, it says here in Ephesians that it's a free gift from God. But as I thought about that, I was like, this isn't something, my wife and I are kind of discussing this. We get faith as a free gift, but we have to do something with it. We have to take care of it. We have to use it. We don't just get this free gift and then sit there with sin crouching at the door, ignoring it. God will take care of it. Well, yes, God can take care of it, but I have a responsibility here to exercise and practice this faith that he has given to me as a free gift. I see the Christians that seem to walk so well or or walk out their faith so well, they are very disciplined. They're super, super disciplined in their faith. They're up early, they're reading, they're praying, they're fasting regularly. They're super generous with their time and with their resources. And I see their life and I, and I say, it makes sense because they're extremely disciplined. I was in the office the other day and Dick Worthington, most of you guys know Dick Worthington. He's been in the ministry for over 40 years and he was in between meetings and he was just reading his Bible. And I walked by and I just said, Hey, what are you doing? What are you reading? You know? And I mean, Dick is almost 80 and he goes, you know what? I, I realized this year, I've never done the one-year Bible reading plan. And so I decided this year, I'm going to do that. And I'm just going to read daily what the one-year Bible plan is. Here is a guy who has been in his word and a minister of the gospel for decades. And he said, that's not enough. I want to continue this discipline of being in God's word and hearing from him. And on the flip side of that, I met with a young man this past week and he was talking with me and a month ago, he had overcome this addiction that he had and then now he's back on it and all this stuff and he's just really down. And I was like, well, tell me about your life. Like, what's going on? Did, you know, I kind of made a connection for you with the job. Did, how's that going? Eh, I'm working a little bit. Okay. What time are you getting up in the morning? Uh, around noon. Playing video games by chance? Yeah really pale, kind of sickly and tired looking. I'm like, man, bud, you have got to get up. You have got to go work whether you get paid or not. You have got to go outside in the sun. You have got to go for a walk. A walk. You have got to do some push-ups. You've got to hike a trail. You have to do some physical things. You have to get outside. You have to talk with people. I'm like, there are some things about your life that you have to engage in. Obviously, first and foremost, God's word. We talked about that, of course but a lack of discipline. And he had fallen right back in to where he was. And discipline can kind of get thrown around like a bad word, like legalism. No. Discipline is something that you do for the Lord. Legalism is something that you do for yourself. There is a massive difference. And and there's a softer side of culture that wants to downplay the, the spiritual disciplines. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, so healthy to our walk. So God tells him you need to rule over it. <clears throat> Verses one through seven summarized. Cain isn't happy with God. God gives him a second chance. God warms it, warns him. Cain has a choice to make. God says, we have a choice. And then we're given a chance to respond. Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. That's the first murder. This would be the first time that they see 
a living creature, I mean, besides an animal or whatever, a living human being stopped breathing. His own brother. His kids, Cain's kids, will never get to know their uncle. He has to face his parents. The mom and dad have to bury their son. Satan is successful in these last two chapters. Verse nine says, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? God obviously knows. It's just like he asked Eve in the chapter before. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He comes back with this, we would call it sarcastic response. And again, he reveals what's in his heart. If he were healthy spiritually, he would have reacted differently. Abel is in the same presence of the God, in, in, the same, in the presence of the same God at the same time, but has a completely different heart. For Cain, being in God's presence with Abel agitated him. And it, something burned inside of him. Abel just annoyed him. Abel is thinking about God during this time. When he goes before God and brings this offering, Abel is thinking about God. Who is Cain thinking about? He's thinking about Abel, right? And then he's thinking about himself. Honestly, it's pretty selfish. I I have this thing that I used to tell young people, um, winners focus on winning and losers focus on winners. I think we have that here. It sounds kind of harsh not to call people losers, but it's a little bit of what we have. Winners focus on the kingdom and losers focus on small things, complaining, talking about other people, gossiping and complaining about winners instead of focusing on what God is doing and the kingdom and the bigger goal at hand. It's a healthy check for us. Is our heart more like Cain's focused on the Lord? I'm sorry, like Abel's focused on the Lord, or is it more like Cain's focused on our, our own selfish, sinful desires? Puritans have a saying that says, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. If you're, uh, well, I don't know if I have time, but I saw Coach Wade over here. He reminds me of a story we used to tell when we were coaching basketball. Not a story so much as an illustration for players. You have, a respo- you have an opportunity to respond. People say all the time, like, your response is your responsibility. And so Cain and Abel are in this situation, and Cain obviously responds poorly. But we used to tell the players, and I've, maybe I've shared this before, shared it with youth, but during difficult times, maybe even times where your faith is weak or you're feeling challenged or you're frustrated or you're agitated or you're going through something very, very difficult and you're feeling weak, there's an illustration that says like when, the, when the, you have three different things, a coffee bean or an egg or a carrot, and when they're put through heat, boiling water, pressure, they respond differently. The hard outside exterior of the carrot that seems like it's tough and gritty. When it goes through something really difficult, it actually turns to mush. The opposite for the egg, it looks like it's really tough on the exterior, but inside it's, it's just weak and mushy and the shell is soft. But when it goes through t- something hard, it, it gets hard. 
So people who have fragile hearts go through something difficult and they can get this callous, difficult, angry, bitter heart about them. We as believers should respond, like we used to tell our team, in difficult moments like a coffee bean. When you're put under the stress and pressure of the heat and that water, it should change you into something that is better. The coffee bean actually changes the water. Most people would say it changes it into something way better than water. And so we as believers have a choice. How would we respond? Soft and mushy and fold and cry and whine and complain? Grab a Get a cold, hard, calloused heart to a situation? Get angry and bitter? Or do we respond in a way that changes us and changes those around us for the better? This is what Cain does not do. A side note, if you are acting like Abel and your desires are good and they're in right, your heart is right and you're on fire for the Lord, do not be surprised if the world around you acts like Cain. They might not be trying to physically kill you, but the world is in opposition to believers, we see it more and more every day. You might have a coworker or a neighbor or somebody in your family who despises the joy and the peace that you currently have. Do not be surprised by that. Actually, you should on the inside be encouraged that the way that you're living is actually probably how you should. I'm not saying that you should provoke them. Of course not, but now sometimes we are able and if we can admit that sometimes we're able, then we also have to be honest and admit that sometimes we also have the potential to be the canes where we do have this bitterness and this judgment for other people in our heart. If we're constantly in conflict with our spouse, if we're in conflict with our coworkers, if we're in conflict with our friends, if we're in conflict with people around us, if we're in conflict with our friend group or people at church, we are not able. We are Cain. If everywhere you go, it is conflict, it is you that is the problem. And you have to examine where your heart is. <clears throat> now, sometimes I'll meet with couples, I'll meet with parents. Hey, we need to talk with somebody. We got a situation we're dealing with. Um, we need help in our marriage or we need help in our parenting. And early, early on in the conversation, I have to get quickly to this question. Are you a Christian? Are you following Jesus? Because I can give you a whole bunch of worldly to-dos and tell you some really cool little tricks that will last a little while, but eventually we're going to be talking again. I would be giving you a car with no engine or a car with no fuel. What I'm going to tell you is not going to work. The key to healthy, peaceful, joyful relationships is the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. It's following Jesus. That's it. Now, he asks the question, am I my brother's keeper? This is like sarcastic. Am I my brother's keeper? Is this my problem? Well, yes, actually, in fact, you are your brother's keeper. We are to bear one another's burdens as a church family. That should never be a question. Of course we are. 
Now, we're not supposed to be nosy in each other's business, but we're supposed to be looking out for one another and helpful and pouring into the lives of those around us. It's pretty interesting. Um, I was a criminology major to start when I first went to college. And there's a statistic that's pretty startling. 20% of murders that occur are between strangers. So that means 80% are not. you're more likely to be murdered by somebody you know. Four to one, way more likely. So that would tell us that the people around us can drive us crazy, right? The people around us can drive you crazy. If you have kids, I love my kids. They can drive us crazy. I have the great job of driving my wife crazy. I tell her it's for her sanctification. That is my job here on this earth. We saw in Genesis chapter two that God established the family. He said that it is not good for man to be alone. He gives Adam a wife. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Constantly, over and over, the Bible is talking about community. And that is for our sanctification. Just like I said in the story with my daughter explaining to her that I need my wife to help me in the areas that I need to grow in so it is for us. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. My marriage and being a dad has revealed more about my selfishness than anything else in this world. It, it, it shined a giant spotlight on how selfish I was. And I'm so thankful. I couldn't imagine being the guy that I was 23 years ago still today. I don't want to do that. I want to grow. And so it is for us. We should also want to continue to grow in our faith. Iron sharpens iron. Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's response, again, is more concerned about with his current circumstance than with what he actually did. And so we, again, get a little glimpse into what God saw previously in Cain's heart. He is more concerned with now what his current circumstance will be. He says, I'm a killer. What if a killer comes for me? So it was okay for him to kill, but he obviously doesn't want to be killed. And as I was going through this, I was like, man, you know, the Old Testament God gets painted as this really heavy-handed, hard, difficult, righteous judge that is just full of wrath. And yet here we are in only the fourth chapter of Genesis, and we see how patient God is with him. God doesn't even kill him. God doesn't kill him. He's got... Chance after chance after chance. In Cain, we see really it's humanity that is far less forgiving and way more self-righteous, judgmental, and bloodthirsty than God. We as humans are far less forgiving, way more bloodthirsty. We want way more justice for others. Not for ourselves, of course, but for other people. Here's what it has created in our culture. It is so pervasive in our culture. This vengeance is mine, which is contrary to what Jesus would teach us. It is so pervasive 
that we have established a victim mentality. And if you have not heard anything tonight, please understand, I really, really want you to get this part. And I want you to share this with the people in your life, young people, your kids, your grandkids, whatever it is, maybe you need to hear it. Our culture offers victimhood in exchange for the abandonment of responsibility. That's what you get. So you get to be a victim. And in doing so, you give up responsibility. Now, here's the problem with that. We have a lot of hopelessness and depression currently in our culture. They say it's like unlike any other time period before. And part of the reason we have the hopelessness and depression is because of this right here, this victimhood. We sell no responsibility, but what you get in exchange is no meaning. Nothing matters. Everything is pointless. So you don't have to worry about anything. You have no responsibility. You do what you want. And if anything bad happens to you, you're just a victim. But on the other hand, you don't have meaning. You live a meaningless existence. And eventually you will find yourself in the rabbit hole of hopelessness and depression. And it's been said, a meaningful life only has as much meaning as you're willing to pay in responsibility. You ask a lot of people towards the end of their life what they want and it's, or what they want for younger people. I want them to understand that they can live a meaningful life. You ask somebody my age and older, what do you want from your life? I want my life to matter. I want it to count for something. I want it to have meaning. And with that comes the cost of responsibility. So then imagine if you tell an entire nation, multiple generations, you're a victim. The responsibility is not yours. There was a lot of bad things done to you and that's the way you are right now. And you should just play that card till you die. I have no meaning, I have no purpose, and I have no hope. And then I have depression. And then I have to sit around and do nothing. Now I understand there are probably many people here who have had horrible things happen to them. You actually are a victim, a victim of some terrible things. I've talked with some of you, met with kids, talked with families. There are some very horrible things that have happened. And many of you have chosen to not be a victim. And you've, you've turned that and you've used it and it's created some purpose in your life and you've forgiven people and you don't have bitterness in your heart. James uh, chapter one, verses two through four says that count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall in, when you meet uh, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfected and complete and lacking in nothing. Jesus said, there's gonna be trials in this world, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus suffered and died on the cross on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was innocent and we are not. That's the truth. We are not the victims. In the grander sense, verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, again, gracious God, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. 
Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God says, I will, I will protect you. I don't know what this mark was, but imagine walking around the rest of your life. I don't know, maybe it was a tattoo or something people speculate. You just have a tattoo that's like, you can't touch me. Like, you can't touch me. I killed my brother, but you can't touch me. God is protecting me. It's crazy to think about that, how merciful God is. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Is this part crazy to you guys? Is this kind of weird? The big questions that people are like, who's going to kill Cain? How did he get a wife? Where's the city? Where did all these people come from? I was kind of in the same boat and um, I've read before some things, but recently I, I was able to spend a little bit more time in this. I don't, we don't have time to go into all of it. It's super, super fascinating, the math behind it all, especially if Cain and Abel were over 50. Now, here's the part that's hard. There were some relatives that probably had babies together, but what we do have is a very pure perfect race of humans. We said in the beginning, Adam and Eve are perfect, genetically just absolutely perfect. But most people think by this time, by this stage of the game, when Cain is looking for a wife, they say, and I've kind of looked at the formula for it, there could have been on the low side, like 8,000 people already. I mean, people are living hundreds of years. They're having lots of kids. Minimum, they're probably having like 10 kids. If you have five boys and five girls, and then that keeps happening and happening and happening, Cain could easily have had a wife, had a city, and there could have been people out there that he was afraid of. That could have easily happened by that point. So if you're interested in any of that, you want to discuss it, email me. Um, verse 18 goes through some of his family now. To Enoch was born Arad, Arad fathered Mehajel, Mehajel fathered Methushel, fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jebel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Verse 22, Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. A few new things that are brought onto the scene here in chapter four, the invention of urbanization, city, tech, entertainment, evolution of technology and civilization continues through in these generations here. But at the same time, we have an evolution technologically, but we have a devolution or a devolving of culture and marriage and relationships. It says in verse 19 that Lamech, we'll call him Lamo, took two wives. Two wives. Lamech introduces something that he should not be introducing. Polygamy. He is the great, great, great grandson of Cain. The apple does not fall, for, fall far from the tree. We have now devolved to the point in our culture where we are not only forgiving of relationships like this or accepting, 
but we are now celebrating the destruction in our current culture in 2023. We celebrate the destruction of God's biblical mandate for marriage and family. And I would like to remind us all that the judgment and wrath of our just and gracious loving God is actually real. This quote is from 2007. Marriage has historic, religious, and moral content that goes back to the beginning of time. And I think a marriage is as a marriage has always been and should be between one man and one woman. Does anybody know who said that? It was said in 2007 by Hillary Rodham Clinton. We are in a rapid, rapidly changing culture. I think the biggest, the best way to fight against that is to have beautiful, healthy marriages and families that love and honor God and their relationships. I think it will cause the rest of the world to say, this over here is not working, but that is. Words and arguing and legislation and laws and blah, 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 sure, whatever. Just look at the way they live their life. That's right. And I think we will get there. I don't know if we will see it, but I think we one day, I'm hopeful that we will get there. Keep living on mission as we are called to do. God's design, Genesis 2, marriage, one man, one woman. Polygamy doesn't work. Not a good idea. We see the effects that it has even currently in our world. Abraham slept with Sarah's maidservant. They got impatient, wanted a, a, a son. They have Ishmael. And then later he has Isaac, 14 years later with his wife, Sarah. And then now in 2023, we still feel the result of that decision with the Arab and Israel, um, um, Arab and Jewish nations fighting to this day because one man decided to sleep with two women. It's not a good plan. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. In Matthew 18, 22, Jesus makes reference to this and he speaks out against revenge. He says, how many times should you forgive? 70 times seven, a uh, seven times 70. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore and called his name Seth for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. Otherwise we would be the offspring of Cain. So here we have a new start for humanity. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the first we hear of this, people calling upon the name of the Lord instead of the sons of man, the sons of God. As we close, I was thinking about what Matt said in week one of Genesis. And he said, to try to picture this as a book written to enslaved Jews and their kids. And I think a big part of it is God saying, listen, listen to me. I'm going to ask you to do some big things to get to the promised land and establish my kingdom. They're gonna be hard. There's gonna be some really difficult things. 
can you trust me? Can you lean not on your own understanding? Can you understand that I'm a kind and patient and long-suffering God? What will your response be when things are difficult? Will you have faith that my perfect plan will grow something great in you? I don't want you to come into this relationship with me halfway, faking it. It doesn't work. This is a covenantal relationship. There must be trust. There must be full surrender. We got to be all in together on this thing. In Acts 5, we saw that Ananias and Sapphira were not all in. Dying instantly as they betrayed and misrepresented God. Jesus says there's no backup plan. There's no middle ground. There's no lukewarm. It's all or nothing. You are either for me or you are against me. Forgive and receive my forgiveness. It is that easy. But you have got to be all in. Don't try to hide pieces of your heart. Listen, God says it's going to be hard. I think the longer you live, you realize the road is narrow. The road is narrow. The path that leads to destruction is wide. The road to Jesus is a difficult, hard one. This is like, I think Matt says it all the time. We're not in a playground, we're in a battleground. It should mean something. Second Samuel uh, verse tw- uh, chapter 24, verse 24, I love this. King David, who has made a lot of mistakes in his life, says, I will, he says, I will buy that from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that do not cost me nothing. I understand there will be a cost. My son says, as we close here, this is my last point. My son says when he leaves to go back to college, he has a little thing that he says. He says, burn the boats. And he's making reference to Hernan Cortez. You guys have probably heard the story of the Spanish Armada as it came to the new world. And as they're taking over the Aztec empire, he burns the boats. Cortez burns the boats as the men are taking the, taking the uh, battlefield. There's no backup. It's all or nothing. And when he leaves the house, like he, we're a close family. He, he's like, of course they want to stay and hang out. But he, he says, no, there's no backup plan. When I go to class, I treat it like I am burning the boats. I have no backup plan. Our faith is the same way. Don't make a backup plan. Burn the boats, whatever it is in your past, whatever is holding you back, whatever areas of growth you need, whatever that part of your heart that you have not fully surrendered, burn the boats and go all in and watch God do an amazing work in your life. Father God, we pray. Just as King David prayed, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. God, I, we pray as it says in Ezekiel 36, that we want a new heart and a new spirit. I pray that you would search us no matter where we are in our faith or our walk, Lord, we know that um, you're calling us always to deeper waters. And so I pray that we would trust you Father God, I pray that we would be reminded that you are a good and patient and loving God. I pray that that's a message that would be on our lips, that we would share it with our coworkers and our neighbors and our family. 
even Cain was giving, given opportunity after opportunity. Cain was given a hut. He was given a wife and a home and a city and kids. You blessed him because you're a good and generous and loving God. We thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.